0: War clouds are gathering once again over the Korean peninsula. And at the same time, there are massive protests in South Korea, opposing the policies of the new right wing government. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show, or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Today we're talking with KJ No, a peace activist, organizer with Pivot to Peace. KJ is a scholar on the geopolitics of Asia. He's a frequent contributor to Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. KJ No, welcome back. Thank you.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
0: KJ, we have a lot of ground to cover. I want to be able to talk to you about these truly massive protests that are taking place against the right wing government in South Korea, protests that have been largely underreported or completely ignored in the West. They're big, they're massive. We know that earlier governments, the government before was actually taken down because of mass protests against corruption. And these protests are partly motivated by corruption. So we're going to talk about that. But I also want to talk about the growing war danger in Korea. The United States, South Korean military, and Japan are making signs or indicating that they're ready to climb the escalation ladder and possibly leading to confrontation, a new Korean war. We have to talk about that. I want to be able to put all of this into the historical context of post-World War II history, including the division of Korea. But let's just talk about if you might the magnitude, the dimension of these big protests, again, not well covered in Western media, the protests in South Korea.
1: Well, I think the key thing to note is that they're being described as the candlelight revolution 2.0. The first candlelight revolution, which brought out probably 25% of the South Korean population onto the streets, was the popular movement that brought down the former Park geun government, the right-wing US-quisling Park geun government for corruption and mismanagement. And this looks to be a reprise of that. Just recently on October 22nd, this is already the 11th protest in this sequence, was one of the biggest ones since the resistance to Yoon Seok-yeol, the Korean prime minister, has started. And the on-the-ground reports say that half a million people showed up on the streets. According to the police report, they say that one million Koreans belonging to to various civic organizations, were officially registered for the protest. In Korea, when you have a large-scale protest, you have to register and get permission. And so we're talking about huge numbers. We expect these protests to continue. They'll be held every week. There'll be another massive protest on November 19th. And I think what we can see here is just this continual building of resistance against this extraordinarily corrupt U.S. quisling, Yoon Seokyeol government. The key messages that they're putting out is that Yoon Seokyeol, the Korean prime minister, must resign. The first lady's criminal activities must be investigated. They're asking to immediately cease the U.S.-South Korea-Japan joint war games. They will not tolerate South Korea and Japan cooperating in military activities. And also they want to stop tax cuts for the rich and stop the neoliberal anti-worker, anti-working-class economic policies of the Yun Zhe-Gel government. They have to stop. They're asking to stop the republic of prosecutors. Yun Zhe-Gel said that he would turn the country into a republic of prosecutors because he's a former prosecutor himself. They're saying that this must be stopped and that democracy and the restoration of moral ethical values in government
0: North Korea, the DPRK, has fired several ballistic missiles, ballistic missile tests in recent weeks. The U.S., South Korean, and Japanese government are announcing and have announced just in recent hours that they're prepared to take very severe, draconian, escalating countermeasures against the DPRK if the DPRK continues to carry out weapons tests. KJ, when you think about the growing tension in and political opposition in South Korea, the tension between North and South Korea, the growing antagonism between the United States, Japan, and the South Korean military against the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, when we think about these things and then put it into some historical context of modern history, this is not something new. It might be newly dangerous. It is newly dangerous, but it's not really new. Korea had been colonized by Japan at the time of the defeat of Japan in August 1945. One of the demands of the U.S. government was that the Japanese military, which had been oppressing the Korean people, not leave Korea, that in fact they stay at least in South Korea until American troops could get there. And American troops did arrive in September 1945. So since that time, Korea has been divided between the North and the South. This civilization, this country, this people who have been historically one of the oldest peoples in the world and a unified people, divided. And now we have had a series of wars, near wars, and endless threats of new wars. Anyway, let's just put this into the historical context.
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely important. And I think you've given us very important context. South Korea was colonized by Japan, the U.S. asked the Japanese military to stay there, and then when the U.S. military arrived and it created the U.S. military government in Korea, what they did was they put back in place the entire apparatus of colonial collaborators. These are the Koreans who collaborated with the Japanese occupation, the police, the courts, the bureaucrats, the prison guards. They put them all back into power in order to prevent the Koreans from creating an independent, socialist state, which was called the Korean People's Republic created by thousands of people's committees. All of these people's committees were banned. The Korean People's Republic, which was a socialist state formed from these Korean Soviets was banned. And then they put in this massive, you know, apparatus of oppression that essentially was genocidal in scope and scale, not unlike the genocide that you saw, for example, in Indonesia, and these continuing oppressions and repressions and genocide eventually crested over into the Korean War. Since then, South Korea and North Korea have been split. North Korea has taken on the mantle of continuing the tradition of the independent spiders and the Korean People's Republic. And South Korea has stayed constantly as a U.S. client state, a U.S. vassal. Ensuring U.S. geopolitical interests in the Pacific. And the Japanese connection is very, very important because the majority of South Korea's dictators, Quisling dictators that the U.S. had in place in South Korea for decades were either Japanese Quislings, that is to say that they had served in the Japanese military themselves. I'm talking about, for example, Park Jung-hee, or they were very, very closely aligned to the imperial Japanese fascist right. And what we see again right now in South Korea is that current president, Yoon Suk-yeol, who was elected earlier this year, is strongly allied with pro-Japanese forces in South Korea. And they are creating strong alliances against the massive opposition of the korean people with the japanese right currently in power you know these are the ldp fascists who envision a reconstitution of japan as a regional military power and so you see this kind of devil's triangle of south korean conservatives pro japanese south korean conservatives the extreme far-right japanese political leadership and the us and all of these are coming together to continually increase their pressure on North Korea, just simply a continuation of this long legacy of trying to destroy an independent socialist state in the region.
0: KJ, people in the United States, for the most part, unless they happen to be students of Korean politics or scholars that focus on Korea, they won't know what it means to have a country be divided. on August 10th, 1945, two very young U.S. military officers, one of whom later became Secretary of State, their names were Dean Rusk and Charles Bonesteel. They were assigned to define an American occupation zone in Korea. So the Soviets had declared war on Japan on August 8th, 1945. A day before that, the United States had dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. It was clear that the war, World War II, the Pacific War was going to come to an end. And so the question of what the post World War II landscape would look like was being shaped. So the US military assigned these two young men, they were in their 30s. They didn't know anything about Korea. They didn't speak Korean. They took like basically a pen, a magic marker, and drew a line across the Korean peninsula at the 38th parallel, creating an American zone of occupation below the 38th parallel. And then the Soviets, who at that time were the U.S. military ally, they took control of the occupation zone north of the 38th parallel. And Rusk and Bonesteel wanted to make sure that Seoul, the capital of Korea, was located in the American sphere of influence. Or the American occupation zone. So the line was drawn about 30 miles north of Seoul. Tens of millions of Korean families were then arbitrarily divided. And what the American people don't know, and this is the point that I was getting started with, was the emotional, psychological impact of having your family, literally your family, millions of families, as many as 10 million Korean families who had a brother in the South or a sister in the North, a husband who was in the North, a wife who was in the South, because this is one people traveling back and forth across that border that became a zone of division, the DMZ, the demilitarized zone at the 38th parallel. But the idea that an entire people could be just arbitrarily divided and the division maintained, again, I wanna help Americans who are not Koreans, Understand what the impact of that was on Korean culture, Korean families.
1: I mean, first, Dean Rusk and Charles Bonesteel, you know, they took a ruler and a national geographic map and just drew a line straight through the middle of Korea, making sure that Seoul was in the American side. And as you say, the psychological effects one day people are crossing the border, going to families, etc. You know just relating to one another and the next day this is a militarized line that nobody can cross on pain of death it would be like brian if you had your house and your family and then one day you know some bureaucrat drew a line through the middle of your house and said that you could not cross it and you could no longer meet with your wife you could no longer meet with your children What would that be like? And multiply that effect by 10 million. That's what the effect of that was. And then immediately following this division, then we started to see these near genocidal policies instigated by the U.S. military command in South Korea, killing off thousands of Koreans every time they protested this division or every time they tried to assert their sovereign rights as an independent country. And this escalated to the point where eventually it became full-scale civil war, and then it became a genocidal war of conquest by the United States against North Korea.
0: I want to stay with this issue of division just a little bit longer before we get into some of the other big topics, which include the new protests in South Korea, and the growing tension between the US-South Korean military and the Japanese military against the DPRK. I want to stay with the issue of division. I went to North Korea in 1989, June 1989, and I was part of an international delegation that was accompanying a young South Korean woman named Im Suk-young. She was about 21 years old at the time, and she had gone to the World Youth Festival which I believe was in the DPRK at that time. She had traveled through China. But it was against the law for her as a South Korean to even visit North Korea, even if she had family. And this was true for all Koreans. You couldn't even visit. And if you went to North Korea, you would be punished by up to 10 years in prison or hard labor under what was called the national security law. So I went with her and others, small delegation. We went to the very, very top of North Korea, Mount Baekdu, a very historic place, the mountain that is right along the river that separates China and the DPRK. DPRK shares a bigger border with China, a smaller border with what had been the Soviet Union is now Russia. And we marched all through North Korea. We This delegation went we were marching by foot, but we also at times took vans. So we went all the way from Mount Bektu at the very tip of the north, all the way down to the DMZ, where we were confronted by not South Korean troops, by US troops who were manning this dividing line at the 38th parallel. And as we went, KJ, through towns and villages in North Korea, the masses of people in North Korea came out because they wanted to touch her. They wanted to have some physical proximity to her because she was like the daughter or granddaughter or sister who people had not been able to touch or see or talk to for whatever that was between 1945 and 1989, and certainly by 1950 and 1989. So that would have been 39 years. Hundreds of thousands of North Koreans poured out to come and be with her, North Korean security actually had a hard time controlling the crowds because there was so much emotion. And I actually thought we were going to be stampeded to death. I mean, it was like that sort of raw emotional outpouring. But clearly, this must be a feeling that exists not only in North Korea, but among people in South Korea. Anyway, I just wanted to relay the story to you and to the audience so people get a sense of what the dimension the emotional psychological dimension is of this issue of division.
1: Yes. I mean,
0: it's like long
1: lost family coming together. And when In Sugyang went to North Korea, you know, she was representing the League of Korean students, dae Hop, and she was, you know, welcomed and valorized, and it spoke to the deep, deep yearning for connection and reconciliation among the people. You also saw that in the 90s when there were short momentary visits that were allowed between North Korean families and South Korean families that had been separated. So it's an incredibly emotional, but also incredibly profound, you know, pain, incredibly profound suffering at the heart of the psyche of the Korean people. And this separation has been enforced once again by the U.S. military and the South Korean fascist dictatorships that have, you know, been U.S. client states. So I think you're absolutely correct. I think that, you know, if the U.S. were to get out of the way, the large majority of South Korean people, certainly those with family in the North, and certainly the majority of the progressive politicians, would have reconciliation and some kind of confederated reunification with North Korea. Now, the right-wing political class doing the bidding of the United States is absolutely and completely opposed to this. And it sees anything any relationship with North Korea, a student visiting for a youth game, they see this as absolutely toxic. They see this as absolutely impossible, intolerable. And anytime there's any kind of softening of relations with North Korea, then this is immediately translated into a national security event. In the case of Im Sugiang, she was sentenced to 12 years in prison. First, for going to North Korea, which in and of itself was a crime at the time, and then returning, coming back from North Korea. That itself is another crime. Twelve years she was sentenced to. Her sentence was later commuted by a progressive president. But at the time, and even to this day currently, the notion that, that somehow to humanize North Korea or to want to have relations that are fundamental... To, you know, the Korean psyche, this is demonized and it's made illegal in a way that is fundamental. This is the fundamental reason for the existence of the South Korean Quisling client state, you know, since its inception in 1945.
0: Right. And Im Sook Young, the 21-year-old woman that you referred to, sentenced to 12 years and the sentence was reduced. She did spend five years in prison, I believe. Yes. And other people who were sentenced under the national security law were routinely got 10 years. If you said something favorable or that was interpreted as favorable about North Korea, that was a crime. I mean, this is something also that most Americans... Most people in the United States don't know KJ because we are spoon-fed propaganda, which is there's a struggle in the Korean Peninsula. It's between democratic South Korea and totalitarian North Korea. So communism conflated with totalitarianism, a capitalist pro-U.S. government equated or conflated with democracy, but there was nothing There was nothing democratic about the South Korean government. I mean, during that entire time that I'm talking about, I mean, the first elections were only, I believe, in the late 1980s, and they were very tortured. And many of these draconian laws were in place, and many are still in place. But it was a military dictatorship after 1945, and certainly after the Korean War, Was a military dictatorship. There was nothing democratic about it. And yet the American people were spoon fed the idea that this was a battle between democracy, meaning freedom, and totalitarianism, meaning dictatorship.
1: Yes, it's absolutely a a world upside down. You know, South Korea is probably one of the most brutal military dictatorships to ever exist on the planet. You know, I mean, it has a lot of competition. But even there, I think it was sui, generous. The Park Chang-hee, who was the dictator who held the power for the longest amount of time and sent 320,000 Korean troops to Vietnam, for example, doing U.S. bidding. He gave himself the powers of the Meiji Emperor. It was literally, you know, kind of an imitation of the Japanese colonial imperial system. Regarding this framing of somehow a struggle between democratic South and totalitarian North, it's, you know, completely the opposite. South Korea was the oppressive, repressive totalitarian state. And it's more accurate to see the struggle between North and South as the struggle between patriots And Quislings or collaborators, on the one hand, you had the patriots who were striving for genuine independence, which they saw as the creation of a socialist state, which the vast, overwhelming majority of the Korean people at the time wanted, something in the range of the 80% wanted a socialist system. And then you had the Quislings and the collaborators who were doing the bidding of the United States, and they were largely drawn from the Japanese colonial collaborator class. That division has continued up to the present moment. And we just recently saw the defeat of Lee Jae-myung, who was the progressive candidate, and the ushering in of one of the worst presidents in world history, Yun seo Gyal, He's, you know, he makes... Liz Truss or Juan Guaido, you know, look positively statesmanship like. But you know, this is once again this pro-collaborator, pro-imperial, quizzling administration that has been put in, and it is consolidating this trilateral, what I call as Japan, US South Korea alliance, similar to AUKUS, and it is handing US foreign policy U.S. geostrategic design back to the United States on a silver platter.
0: One of the enduring elements in the struggles, the continuing struggles in Korea, is the intersection of political or class struggle or class struggle for economic and social justice and the struggle for democracy on the one hand, meaning the domestic internal struggle, with the international interplay of great powers who are struggling with each other. And on Korean soil, many of these struggles sort of become dominant at a moment. I mean, even when you think about what happened in June 1950, when the the civil war that was inevitable after the arbitrary division of the country in 1945 by these two young Americans, including Dean Rusk, It spills over. The the war becomes a real war. The North Korean military aligned with the people's committees in the South. They sweep South. Within three days, they were almost at the southern tip of Korea, within three days. But the US, using the UN, the Soviets had boycotted the UN. They were out of the Security Council and thus at least for a moment, relinquished their veto of power because they were standing in solidarity with China, which had been excluded from the Security Council and the UN after Mao and the communists came to power in 1949. So the Soviets were out of the UN. The US then takes advantage of their absence to mobilize the UN, create a UN military force, intervenes in Korea pushes the northern military forces back to the north and then the US invaded the north and tried to go all the way up to and into China before the US was ultimately pushed back both by North Korean guerrilla forces and also Chinese volunteers but so you had this obvious you know manifestation of what in a way was like the center or the apex of a new era of global politics the era of what we know in popular vernacular as the cold war others might call it the global class war that's more the language that i would i think is more apt more descriptive more accurate but all of the western imperial former colonizing powers stood with the united states and with the south korean puppet government and all of the socialist governments stood on the other side so you had this Symmetry. It was, a, in a way, the beginning of or the clearest indication that the world had divided along a new sort of fracture point. You know, in World War II, the different, with the exception of the Soviet Union, the different imperial powers fought each other to see who is going to be the colonial overlord in Asia or Africa or the Middle East, etc. The fissure was between imperial powers. But now in this new era, the fissure was between socialist governments and capitalist governments. That was the fracture line. And in a way, even though the socialist camp is gone, the Soviet Union is certainly no more, the US can't really look at North Korea and its relations with North Korea outside of that framework. And it seems to me that that's the driver of all US policy. And in a way, there's Even though Trump tried to, for a moment, broker a deal with North Korea, he was a very tiny minority. The ruling group in America, the ruling elites, the ruling class, they basically have a consensus position about that, even though I believe DPRK, the North Koreans, would be very, very happy to have normal, truly normal relations with all of these same powers.
1: You know, after the war ended in 1953, there was an armistice which was signed. And the armistice required the U.S., North Korea, and China to engage in negotiations for an enduring peace. Within 24 hours of signing the armistice, the U.S. essentially declared that clause null and void. And they have never, they've always refused to sign a peace treaty with North Korea, despite North Korea's constant and enduring efforts to engage with the United States, have normalized relations, have peaceful relations. So I think you're absolutely correct. And that kind of extraordinary vindictiveness comes out of the fact, as you point out, that the Korean War was a kind of a a turning point in global politics, in global geopolitics, where the Cold War or the class war turned into a hot war. And you saw the world divide into the socialist world and the capitalist world with the non-aligned supporting the socialist world. But more than that, this extraordinary kind of tectonic shit. You saw the the plates collide and erupt into war. And the US in the Korean War, it actually had a, a very, very humiliating stalemate, if not an outright defeat. It has never forgiven North Korea for trying to assert its independence. And it has never forgiven North Korea for handing its ass to the U.S. on the battlefield. And so, like Haiti or Cuba, the U.S. has since then continually tried to threaten and existentially wipe North Korea off the mat. Certainly, culturally, it has tried to demonize it and wipe it off the map. And it also serves a very important political purpose in that it is also a stalking horse for China. That is to say that as the U.S. escalates to war with China, North Korea is used as a pretext for continuing to station troops and to continuing to create alliances that will threaten and contain and roll back China in the Northeast, as well as, and this is a very, very important fact, is that the United States controls the South Korean military, under wartime conditions—that is to say, any time the U.S. declares OpCon Three—it has immediate and total control of all of South Korea's military forces. We're talking about six hundred thousand regular forces and probably about three point five million reservists. It has complete and total access to all these troops, their weapons, their bases, their military capacities in an eye blink, and that's another reason why the U.S. Does not want to normalize relations with North Korea because it needs that pretext of occupation and escalations and war. And also because it's simply the most convenient and ready to hand military force in the Pacific that the U.S. can deploy if it decides to engage kinetically, for example, with China over Taiwan.
0: Indeed. And it's really important for people to understand the evolution of recent politics, I mean, you know, we're recording this show, KJ, on October 26th and 20 years ago today, I was the principal organizer of a demonstration that was 200,000 persons strong, the first massive demonstration against what was then the pending war, US war against Iraq. That was 20 years ago. And, you know, we could see that the war was based on lies. It was premised on lies. Most of the people in the United States at that time did not want to go to war against Iraq. Now, the U.S. went to war against Iraq, and it was a complete disaster for everybody, mainly for the people in Iraq and the people in the Middle East. But it was a disaster, too, for U.S. military families, for the U.S. soldiers who were killed or horribly wounded the thousands, tens of thousands of American troops who came back, just a mess, and 35,000 of them committed suicide in the last 20 years, people who came back from Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, it was an obvious lie. The US is sort of in a state of perpetual war. And there was this moment, weirdly, under Donald Trump, where the endless war in the Middle East, the endless war against North Korea, these these nonstop aggressions against targeted countries, for a moment, it looked like the United States might have a new position on North Korea. And so Trump went and met with Kim Jong-un at North Korea's, you know, North Korea was the one who initiated the process and said, let's meet, let's have a deal, let's end the Korean War, let's replace that armistice in 1953 with a real peace treaty. And so Trump went to Singapore in 2018, June, and then later to Hanoi. I had the opportunity to be at both of those meetings. I was covering them for my show. And one of the things that really struck me about that was that even though there was a lot of optimism and enthusiasm in South Korea, not to mention in North Korea, about a possible end of the Korean War and the beginning of normal relations. It wasn't really the South Korean government that had the the deciding vote. It was really up to the U.S. It was a negotiation between the U.S. and the DPRK. And Trump seemed to be for it. And then his advisors nixed it. The Democrats were opposed to it most of the capitalist media in the U.S. was opposed to it. Trump had a very minority position on that. But the thing that I'm mentioning here, the thing that I want to point out is it really wasn't a decision by South Korea. Whether or not this level of tension and animosity continued was a matter for Washington. It was Washington policymakers, not the government in Seoul, which shows that DPRK, whether people like or hate the DPRK. They have sovereignty. They have the ability to make their own decisions where, as you're saying, in the case of South Korea, they actually don't have sovereignty.
1: You're absolutely correct. And consonant with the notion of sovereignty is any concept of democracy has to start with sovereignty. Without sovereignty, you have no democracy. It's simply a contradiction in terms, even the vitiated, weak, process-oriented democracies of the West and the so-called, you know, western allied countries. If a country does not have some meaningful sovereignty, that is, agency over its own policies, then it's a complete farce in and of itself. And you are absolutely correct. The decisions, especially the foreign policy decisions, especially towards North Korea, are not decided in Seoul. They're decided in Washington. The simple fact is the peace, sorry, the armistice itself, South Korea was not a party to the armistice. It did not sign on the dotted line for the armistice agreement. It was between the U.S. and the DPRK and China. That shows you the level of which South Korea has always been a quizzling client state of U.S. geopolitical design. And the South Koreans can try all they want to normalize relations, but at the end of the day, it is the U.S. and the U.S. military that decides whether anything moves forward or not. Just one other example, during the Moon Jae-in administration, what they wanted to do was as this thawing of relations was happening, you know, the Moon Jae-in administration wanted to reconnect the rail lines between South Korea and North Korea, which had traditionally existed, you know, since the Japanese colonial era. When they tried to do that, the U.S., which controls the demilitarized zone as its own sovereign, you know, area of control, they said, no, you are not going to cross the DMZ and connect these rail lines. And so the South Korean government had to give up completely. So in every way, in every detail, South Korea is thwarted against its national aspirations for reconnection with its kindred family because it serves the U.S. agenda to have this polarized, split And highly militarily escalated region, so that the US has first, you know, a base with which to contain and roll back China. And secondly, that it uses South Korea as it does Japan and other countries as, you know, a source of markets and corporate control and military, a military platform.
0: The United States and South Korean military. Now we're in the post Moon Jae-in period. We have this new right-wing government. Moon Jae-in was the previous government. uh, Government in South Korea lasts one term. He had to go out. He obviously favored and was working hard in terms of advocating for a thaw between North and South Korea, as you mentioned with the rail links, but Moon Jae-in was also very much promoting the idea that the U.S. should, in fact, have a peace treaty with the DPRK. So Moon Jae-in is gone. This new right-wing government has taken its place. And we're, in a way, back to where we were before 2017. But the new thing is the resumption of these military exercises, which there have been some military war games after Trump met with Kim Jong-un, but they were very scaled back. And some of them were just computer-based war games. But these war games, the ones that just took place in the end of August, September 2022, they're massive. And they also simulate the destruction of North Korea. They actually, this time, KJ, admitted it was considered a, quote, leak, but I think it was a deliberate, quote, leak. That the U.S. was also in the simulated war games carrying out the assassination of Kim Jong-un, the head of state of North Korea. Yes. Now, when you think about Libya, where the U.S. actually worked for the lynching and the ultimate lynching of Muammar Gaddafi, and Hillary Clinton said, we came, we saw he died, and she was laughing about the lynching of this 70-year-old head of state. The U.S., when it invaded Iraq, captured Saddam, and Saddam was hung, he was executed, so the idea of simulating the invasion and destruction of a, the government of a country and assassinating its head of state, these are not war games. There's nothing gaming, you know, like people think games, oh, fun or ritualistic or something, something not real. But when you have um, the biggest military in the world working with the South Korean military, which is also very big carrying out war exercises right on the borders and near the waters of North Korea, that means the entire North Korean population and the military has to also respond because you don't know if you're the target, whether the war exercises will just really bleed into an actual invasion, especially given the fact that the U.S. indeed did invade North Korea in 1950 and did destroy the country. So it's not like it's just an abstraction. But again, people here won't get it. They won't understand what the impact is on people in North Korea, officials in North Korea, to carry out these kind of war games, which again, now have resumed. And North Korea, in turn, started testing new weapons and new missiles. And then the US media says, see, North Korea is an aggressor. Like, the only thing North Korea apparently is allowed to do is to be like a punching bag and never respond. Anyway, go ahead.
1: Yes. I mean, I think the first thing to understand is that these war games, there are two sets of them. There's Uji Freedom Guardian and Toksuri Anzu. You know, these are massive war games. They are the largest war games on the planet. Previous, prior to COVID, they were deploying 300,000 troops, you know, which makes them larger than the D-Day invasion itself. So you have Massive firepower, strategic firepower, massed up against the North Korean border within inches of North Korea's nose. And then they admit that this is a rehearsal, among other things, for the decapitation of the leadership. They admit. That it is a rehearsal for the decapitation of the North Korean leadership. That's literally written into doctrine. That's OP plan, operational plan 5015, which they rehearse twice a year. And then connected to OP plan 5015 is something called KMPR, Korea Massive Punishment and Retaliation, which again is massive decapitation attacks on North Korea. So all of this is just so incredibly belligerent, but it is also timed, these exercises are always timed to coincide with North Korea's planting and harvesting season. So if you can imagine the fear of imminent war, of imminent existential destruction, combined with the fact that you have to redeploy people from farms, you know, doing harvesting or planting, and then have them man, you know, the barracks. This is another way of continually putting pressure and creating food insecurity in North Korea. The reason why the North Koreans are so incredibly threatened and distraught by these war games, which at this current point are unending. Since August, there have been four sets of war games. They just continue one after the other. So we're not even seeing a break anymore. During the Korean War, the U.S. killed off, conservative estimates, at least one fifth of North Korea's population. The entire country was doused in napalm. The U.S. would bomb the country, you know, have these carpet bombing runs, and they would knock out every school, every kindergarten, every childcare center, every hospital. Any building that was over two stories was literally pulverized into the ground. And people who traveled, reporters who traveled through North Korea at the time, you know, report back that it was like traveling over a moonscape, that there was nothing left standing. And somewhere between one-fifth and one-third of the North Korean population was killed during this, you know, genocidal war. And so when the U.S. rehearses decapitation and war against North Korea multiple times a year, of course, the North Koreans are going to be very upset about this. And of course, they're going to send warnings. And sometimes those warnings involve the firing of, of live arms. There's one last piece that I'll, I'll add to this. North Korea is following a classical geostrategic approach to defend itself. If you recall, during the height of the Cold War, the Soviet military had conventional advantage. The U.S. way to offset the Soviet military advantage was to create a bigger, more dangerous, more lethal weapon. And this is what we call the first offset. The first offset is essentially mass or mass power, that is the nuclear bomb. When the Russians got their own nuclear weapons, the U.S. decided to offset this with the second offset. This is precision. Precision is the idea, is that you have cruise missiles that knock out massed weapons before they can be fired. The response to the second offset, and this is what we're seeing currently in the current geostrategic contestation, is what we call the third offset. The third offset against precision is dispersion. And so when a precision attack is threatened. What you do is you disperse your forces both in space and in time. You diffuse them so they cannot all be taken out. North Korea currently has its first offset, you know, which is the nuclear weapon that was threatened with precision attacks by KMPR and Plan 5015, this decapitation attacks on command and control and the leadership. And so what North Korea has done is it's declared a nuclear policy whereby it says that if it is decapitated, it will authorize a dispersed response from its own nuclear forces. That is to say, it's a kind of dead man switch. You knock out our leadership. That does not mean that you end nuclear retaliation. And so this is what is putting the United States into a high state of anxiety. You know, our approach of decapitation doesn't look like it's going to work. And so once again, you see the threat escalation, this rhetorical escalation between Japan, South Korea, and the United States, threatening even worse retaliation if North Korea dares to use some kind of deterrence against attack.
0: KJ, I want to thank you for sharing that assessment, that analysis for people who aren't paying attention to military affairs or military strategy. I think it's extremely useful because in real terms, this is the level that governments are functioning on. They're not functioning based on press releases or, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings. They're getting ready for worst case scenarios. And if you're North Korea, you have to. And as you said, and it's well documented about the genocidal level of destruction during the Korean War, the Encyclopedia Britannica in 1967 says that, between four and five million Koreans died who would not have otherwise died between 1950 and 53 as a consequence of the war. So we're talking about 20% levels of the extinguishing of a population. And as you also said, by the war starts in June 1950, everybody, June 25th. By January 1951, the pilots in the United States Air Force, their main complaint when they were sent out on these endless bombing runs is, quote, there is nothing left to bomb. That was January 1951. There's nothing left to bomb. Everything taller than one story, any structure one story or higher, gone, just gone. And yet the war goes on between January 1951 and July 1953. And during that entire two and a half year period, even though there's nothing left to bomb, the carpet bombing continues. And so you have a level of destruction and the magnitude of violence against the targeted people. It's so dystopian. It's so beyond imagination. And, and also, KJ, the other element of this, which I think is super important because, you know, Associated Press reporters and others later talked, and I was actually part of a, some fact finding missions in South Korea where I went with a video camera and was able to talk to South, older folks in South Korea. Who had lost loved ones from US military forces who just killed civilians. I mean, they just killed them. And there was a certain logic to killing civilians because if the people in Korea, the patriotic people in Korea, are fighting against occupation, you never know who might be your enemy. That old grandmother looking woman, she might be your enemy because may be, maybe she is a patriot. The 10 year old boy on a bicycle who's riding towards you. Well, he might be the enemy too, because in resistance wars, when people are occupied, the entire population is you know, part of the war effort. There is a people's war. So for the US military, the rules of engagement were basically don't ask questions, just shoot. It wasn't like shoot first and ask questions later. It was just shoot first. They're Koreans anyway. You can characterize them with racist language. So they're not really equal to you. You can kill them. And if you kill them, even if they're a civilian and they weren't going to do you harm, at least you know they couldn't kill you because they're dead. So there's a certain logic to these massive war crimes that were committed against the Korean population institutionally, by the military, and also by individual U.S. soldiers operating under those kind of rules of engagement. But that's the reality. That was the nature of the U.S. war in Korea. Similar, by the way, I would say to how the US cavalry conducted itself when it massacred indigenous whole indigenous villages in the northern part of the Americas. It was literally
1: a transposition of US policy, US genocidal policy against the indigenous peoples of the Americas onto Asia, onto the you know, Cold War battlefront. You're absolutely correct. You know, this logic of war, the carpet bombing, the free fire zones where you kill anything that moves where anyone is in a certain area is just assumed to be an enemy. You know, there are specific policy directives to strafe and kill refugees who are fleeing. You know, there are hundreds, thousands of these incidents. One of these was actually even documented by the AP about a group of 400 refugees that were trapped in a tunnel by the United States and fired on on both sides with machine guns. You know, women were in there. Pregnant mothers, you know, gave birth and then were shot to death. You know, the newborns were shot to death. And this lasted, you know, over hours and days. So this was kind of the standard policy. This was the standard policy. The kind of atrocities, the truly genocidal atrocities that most people associate with the Vietnam War were actually prefigured and prepared during the Korean War, which itself was a continuation of US genocidal policy against any resisting indigenous people, which was what Korea was. I think that you're absolutely correct that North Korea, having lived through this experience of complete and total genocidal war, they have to take this in mind. You know, countries that have this kind of biblical level of destruction, usually they never recover. Or if they do recover, they don't recover. They, the political leadership goes insane. That is not the case for North Korea until 1978. It became an industrialized country and was beating South Korea in the economic field. And so the kind of resilience, the courage, the strength of North Korea is extraordinary. And once again, that is why they have to be so deeply demonized and constrained and contained and sanctioned. And ultimately taken down because it's a, an example of resistance that cannot be allowed to stand.
0: Very important, very, very, very important. You know, and I've been to North Korea multiple times, but the first time I was really amazed at, at Pyongyang, the capital city. In spite of the sanctions, this was again 1989, before the complete destruction of the socialist camp. So. North Korea had trading partners, not just with China, but also Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. But Pyongyang had been rebuilt. The capital city, which, as we've talked about, was gone. I mean, it was like basically, like you said, a moonscape. It was rebuilt really within a decade, actually even shorter than a decade. There was so much progress And the North Koreans, again, the U.S. media treats Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il, the earlier leader, or Kim Il-sung, the founder, sort of the George Washington of North Korea, the father of the country, so to speak. Unlike George Washington, Kim Il-sung fought against slavery, didn't enslave people. But, you know, there's such a demonization of the leaders as if they are madmen, as if they are insane, like they're these insane figures and it's this kind of demonizing and it intersects of course with racism, profound racism against Asian people and against Korean people. But when you look at the track record of the DPRK, they have navigated through the most internationally complex and hostile international environment on many fronts. Not just the conflict with the United States, not just the conflict with South Korea, but also North Korea, which shared a border, as I said, with the Soviet Union and China. When the Soviet Union and China, the two largest socialist countries, the two socialist giants engaged in a political and then later a state-to-state dispute, and they both had shared a border with this little country, North Korea, North Korea had to navigate that dispute. I mean, this is a, a sophisticated leadership. It would not have survived without being sophisticated. And you can demonize North Korea, you can caricature it, you can do all that, but it would not have survived without having a nuanced approach and a very refined approach to world politics. And again, I want to go back, KJ, to the summit agreement that Kim Jong-un did sign with Donald Trump. And again, I was there. I was in Singapore. By the way, luckily, I was with the international press, not the American press, because the US press, I have to say, they were disgusting. They were yelling at Trump when he signed the agreement with Kim Jong-un. While Kim Jong-un is in the room, members of the US media were yelling at Donald Trump, do you consider him your equal? Meaning they were really upset that Donald Trump was treating North Korea and the North Korean leader as their equal, which of course you have to do if you're going to sign an agreement with the other party. But this kind of racism and colonial nature of the American media was just so pronounced. Anyway, Here's what the Singapore summit says. These are the four points around which the North Korean leadership, this demonized, caricatured, vilified leadership actually signed with the president of the United States. One, the United States and the DPRK commit to establish new U.S. DPRK relations in accordance with the desire of the peoples of the two countries for peace and prosperity. That's point number one. Point number two. The United States and the DPRK will join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. Point number three, reaffirming the April 27, 2018 Panmunjom Declaration, the DPRK commits to work towards complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And point number four was about exchanging the remains of prisoners who died during the Korean War prisoners. Anyway, that's kind of a minor point. But when you think about point number three was about denuclearization, the whole issue for North Korea and the thing that Trump was agreeing to at that time was point number one and two, which is we're gonna treat you like a normal country. We're gonna have friendship with you. We're gonna be have normalized relations. We're going to create a peace regime on the Korean peninsula. Anyway, it takes a lot for a country as small as North Korea to get Its adversary, the United States, to come to those kind of terms, which seem completely reasonable because they are. And yet, Trump was demonized by the entire establishment for having gone along with this kind of idea that there should actually be, at long last, peace on the Korean Peninsula.
1: You're absolutely correct. I mean, this was a kind of an extraordinary moment. And it speaks to, I think, the skill. Of North Korean diplomacy and leadership, with a a strong assist from the South Korean leadership of Moon Jae in at the time. And the sequence was very, very clear that North Korea wants normalization, and then it wants peace, a lasting peace, and then it will move together for denuclearization. Normalization, peace, denuclearization. That was the sequence that was set up. And these are eminently rational and reasonable expectations, why wouldn't you want to have peace with a country? Why wouldn't you want to have normalized relations? Why wouldn't you want to reduce the risk of nuclear war? But the US has been so deeply belligerent and vindictive towards North Korea that this possibility had been off the table for almost seven decades until, you know, Trump, with his, you know, kind of out of the box approach, made some of that possible. And once again, you know, partly due to, you know, the diplomatic skills of the North Korean diplomatic corps. But of course, it was shot down immediately by the deep state, the national security state, John Bolton, you know, made sure that he put a a wrench in the works. But the larger point about the demonization of North Korea in particular, and the leadership is just a continuous ongoing troop, which you correctly point out has to do with some of the worst racism. I mean, colonialism, imperialism is always racist, but this is kind of taking those racist tropes and turning them into, you know, sheer caricatures. The simple fact is that North Korea has played a weak hand extraordinarily well. And that speaks to the really strong leadership that they have had in an extraordinarily hostile environment. Just a few you know, points, I would say that North Korea is, in some cases, it's more technologically advanced than South Korea. For example, it launches satellites. It's a poor country. It's the poorest world's advanced state. It's the poorest advanced state in the world. And for example, at one point, it was by ranking of GDP, it was somewhere in ranking around 200, 202nd, one of the poorest countries in the world. But even at that point, it punched 100 rankings above its weight in terms of life expectancy. That is to say, it has and it had a life expectancy longer than the Philippines. You don't get those kinds of good results in you know health and longevity without having extraordinary skilled leadership that really you know tries to make the best out of very very difficult adverse circumstances.
0: Yes if North Korea was not sanctioned, not blockaded, if North Korea was just left alone, it would again become a very, very, very thriving economy. If North Korea and South Korea, even on a Confederate basis or a confederal basis, were able to unite which the US does not want, Korea would become a major, one of the biggest powerhouses in the world economically. Very educated population, very obviously very productive populations. I mean, it would just, it would take off. It would be like in the top tier. Again, the US prefers to have countries be weaker and smaller and fragmented. South Korea has a very big economy even now because of. The way the U.S. has allowed foreign direct investment to take place in South Korea, encouraged it, and also given access to South Korea to the world market. But even still, if the two Koreas united, it would be a huge powerhouse. Anyway, we're not talking, KJ. I want to, as we start to get towards the finish line here, we're not really seeing the prospect in the short term of reunification. And in fact, we are. Possibly headed towards another confrontation, perhaps a major confrontation. I mean, people should really remember that war in Ukraine seemed to be distant and unlikely, you know, a year ago. But, you know, here we are, eight months into the war, and it's going full steam, and the U.S. is quite happy about it. I'm looking at a headline from, well, as we're speaking, eight hours ago. It's from the Associated Press. U.S. allies warren decisive response if North Korea tests nuke. Here's the first line, KJ. Officials from the United States and its Asian allies, Japan and South Korea, and again, South Korea is not really an ally. It's sort of a subservient government, suspect North Korea is preparing for a nuclear test. And vice foreign ministers from these three countries said Wednesday, October 26th, that their joint response would be, quote, decisive, close quote. Anyway, you have the US and South Korea engaging in simulated invasion and destruction of North Korea. As you're telling us, KJ, the war exercises are not just the ones in August and September. They're they're endless. North Korea has got to do something. North Korea, one of the things it will do is demonstrate that it has ever more powerful and more accurate weapons And now these three so-called allies are announcing, even as we speak, that if North Korea dares to carry out a nuclear test, even if it's obviously designed to defend North Korea, their response will be, quote, decisive. Their response will be decisive. Decisive. That means the possibility of an even larger confrontation, KJ, looms. Yes.
1: So, I mean, I think the first thing to highlight is that the U.S. war against North Korea has never ended. It has always refused peace. It has always escalated. In 19, right after the armistice, it immediately started placing new weapons, although the armistice prevented that. It never removed its troops, although all Chinese troops left. And then in 1958, it placed nuclear weapons on the Korean peninsula, kept them until 1991, after which it turned its ICBMs towards North Korea. So the war has never ended. And North Korea has always been under the threat of existential destruction. The way that it has finally clawed its way out of this constant enduring threat has been to build its own nuclear deterrent capacities. And it has a plan to continue to do that and has a plan to continue to test. This is independent of what the West will say but clearly the us and its quizzling allies are trying to head this off it's trying to threaten north korea you know into backing down and once it backs down you know there will be further concessions demanded but this key i think point that we have to understand is that north korea cannot survive without nuclear weapons it understands that it's seen what libya is The U.S. offered many times the Libya option, you know, completely disarm yourselves, come naked to the table, bend over, and hope for the best. North Koreans have said, we are not going to do that. And they have made it as part of their declaratory nuclear policy that they are a de facto nuclear state and that they will never give away their weapons. So all the promises of the agreed framework, the six-party talks, and even the Panmunjom agreement All of that is now water under the bridge. North Korea is asking to be recognized as a de facto nuclear state, and it sees this as its sword and shield, guarding its sovereignty. And the U.S. is, U.S. and Japan and South Korea, once again, trying to take this away. They're trying to threaten North Korea. Yoon Seok-yeol, Gyal, is probably one of the most, you know, poorly thought and mentally challenged leaders of the current generation has threatened nuclear, preemptive nuclear strikes against North Korea, which is why North Korea has had to escalate in its own legal position vis-a-vis South Korea. But the fact is that we are facing truly existential planetary consequences if this escalates into a nuclear exchange, And I think it's incumbent on the U.S. and Japan and South Korea to climb down from this escalatory talk. You know, North Korea is doing what it sees as necessary to defend its sovereignty, to defend its existence. It has a minuscule military budget. Its military budget is somewhere between 80 percent to 50 percent of the NYPD budget. It does not constitute a threat to any country. And the only threat that its nuclear weapons constitute is kind of a deterrent threat, if you will, the threat to continue to exist, which the US cannot and does not want to tolerate. But all this extraordinary threat escalation and posturing, I think, is so it's so deadly, it's so dangerous that I think that anybody who has, you know, even an inkling of this has to really put their shoulder in trying to stop this, especially on the part of the government over which we have some say in, which is the U.S. government.
0: I'm looking at the political newspaper called The Hill, very influential newspaper in Washington, D.C. They ran an opinion piece on October 19th, bring U.S. nukes, meaning nuclear weapons, bring U.S. nuclear weapons back to South Korea to counter Kim Jong-un's deadly game. So KJ, we're on the escalation ladder. Hubris and arrogance are drivers of US policymakers. When you think of Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and all these, these rich kids who now suddenly have lots of power, they've never had to suffer or want anything in life. In the case of Anthony Blinken, his father was a, a famous cold warrior too. They have the, the bit in their mouth. They're going for it. They feel very emboldened, and they're very happy about the war in Ukraine because they've been able to unite the various imperialist countries in Western Europe under NATO. They've kind of muffled anti-war opposition in in Europe because pushing Russia into a corner against the wall, Russia finally decided to act rather than be completely surrounded we never said yeah that's good we never have said we approve of that tactic by russia but we understand the tactic because the us refused to negotiate and kept moving nato further and further and further to the east meaning using ultimately ukraine whether it was formally in nato or or not using ukraine as a staging ground for the placement of a very advanced threatening you know, genocidal weapons against Russia, targeting Russia on Russia's border. Now we see the same replay taking place in Asia. By the way, for our audience, South Korea and Japan are being invited to be like sort of Asian component elements of NATO, like global NATO. NATO is now really global. Of course, it you know, it was NATO that bombed Libya. It was NATO that invaded Afghanistan. It's not absolutely new, but There is an escalation going on, an acceleration towards war. And I want to point it out because when you have prominent newspapers in Washington, D.C., demanding that the U.S. place nuclear weapons in Korea, as it did, as you pointed out, until the late 1950s, clearly they want to escalate. And so we are, as you put it, in this epic struggle between the forces of war and peace, and people have to be aware of it. We're creating awareness, but with the idea that we have to act on that awareness. Ultimately, also, what happens in South Korea, KJ, and this is where I want to conclude. What happens in South Korea also matters. Moon Jae in's government had a far different orientation than the current government. The people in South Korea are denied sovereignty, but they exist as a people, they exist as human beings who have. You know, ideas and thoughts and want change. There are massive protests going on right now against this right wing government in South Korea. And with rare exception, I, I see almost no coverage in the West. Let's just take, as we start to wrap up here, the pulse of people in South Korea who are clearly not happy. Why are they unhappy? What are the principal drivers of these new big protests in South Korea?
1: Yes. Well, I think this is very, very important to note. First, that there is almost no coverage. And second, the scale of these responses. That is to say, you know, last Saturday there was somewhere in the range of anywhere, according to the police, 15,000 or according to the organizers, 500,000 people, half a million people in the streets protesting the Moon Jae-in government. And essentially what they are asking for is the resignation of Yun Seok-yeol. So this is for several reasons. First is because they think that he is incredibly corrupt. They are disgusted with his foreign policy, including his complete and total subjugation with the U.S. and Japan, his collaboration with the Japanese Military, but also because Yun Soyeol, when he ran as a candidate, he said that he would make a nation of prosecutors. I've said in the past that Yun Soyeol is a mixture of John Bolton, Donald Trump, and J. Edgar Hoover. He was a former prosecutor, and what he's doing is he's trying to prosecute all of his political enemies. So he raided Lee Jae Myung, the opposing progressive candidate's house over 240 times since he's taken office. He's arrested the close aide of Kim Jong over campaign finance charges. And they're preparing to arrest the former president, Moon Jae-in, claiming that somehow they covered up something around North Korea. During the Moon Jae-in administration, there was a South Korean fisheries official who may have been attempting to defect to North Korea you cannot say that in the korean political atmosphere and not have repercussions but the fact that the government itself said that now the yoon so yal government is saying is that is absurd and you know this story must have been concocted and then the other issue was that there were a couple of north korean defectors who were repatriated to north korea this is because they killed 16 people as they were defecting or prior to defection. And the Moon Jae-in administration saw them as criminal fugitives, not as political refugees. And therefore, they were returned to North Korea. But the Yoon se administration is using this as a federal case against the Moon Jae-in administration. And they're preparing charges against the former president, Moon Jae-in and they're preparing charges against the you know leading candidate against Yoon Suk Yeol Lee Jae-myung and so this kind of extraordinary abuse of the prosecutorial power which really just harks back to South Korea's military dictatorships that practice of taking down all of one's enemies combined with extraordinary resistance against Yoon Suk Yeol's neoliberal economic policies which are creating untold suffering among the working class. This is the reason why you have half a million people take to the streets, and they are serious in demanding the end of this administration. And if they were left to their own devices, I think this administration would collapse within weeks, if not days, except for the support and the influence of the United States as usual.
0: All right, we are gonna leave it right there for now, but we're gonna continue to follow the growing war danger in the Korean Peninsula and the growing struggle of the people in the Southern half of Korea for democracy and for social and economic justice. Today, we were talking with K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist. He's an organizer with Pivot to Peace. K.J. is a scholar on the geopolitics of Asia. He is also a frequent contributor to Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. K.J. no, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. Thank